welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. Um, My name is Ingrid Cochran. Uh, Today's episode is um, very special as we really are trying to honor Pride Month here in the U.S. Pride Month we celebrate every June, and it's really to commemorate the Stonewall riots um, that occurred in June of 1969. So what we want to do today is really recognize the impact um, that LGBTQ plus people have in our world, in our communities. And so today's guest is Joe Brumer. I want to take this time to introduce my co-host, Matthew, before we jump into our interview with Joe today. Ingrid, thank you uh, for the introduction. And I am Matthew Portell, the Director of Communities with Paces Connection. Um, And I'm really excited to introduce uh, the guest today, not just because of his amazing work, um, because I can call him actually a friend. Um, So anytime I get to talk to to multiple friends, uh, I really do enjoy it. So Joe, um, Joe and I have known each other for a long time, but he is a survivor of a lot. He's a survived child abuse, uh, excessive bullying. He had two separate violent anti-gay hate crimes committed against him. And what that's what began a healing response to the trauma that has transformed his professional involvement in the field and community of restorative justice. Since 2010, Joe has actively helped schools implement peer mediation programs and school-wide restorative practices. Um, As a private consultant, he began in 2015. Um, Joe has designed a trauma-informed approach to restorative practices and infused this model in schools. He authored an amazing book that I have read and reference all the time uh, called Building a Trauma-Informed Restorative School. So, Joe, welcome, and we are so glad you are here. Thanks for having me, and happy Pride. Absolutely. It is is an amazing uh, time that we get to celebrate with our friends, colleagues, loved ones um, who are LGBTQ, uh, and it's great that we can have that time to celebrate. So let's start off. Just tell us. How did you come into this work, Joe? What is your story and how did you find the work around ACEs and the ACE study? Wow. Um, I came into this work, um, I think, surely by accident, like lots of people, um, and not with any drivers of my background at the time. I, I started, I'm, I'll go all the way back to the very beginning of how I got into mental health at all. And that's that I took a job through a temp agency to be the front desk guy at a, a doctor's office that did psychotherapy at a, a hospital. And so I, my first introduction to a lot of this work was being a new patient coordinator, you know, or intake coordinator for a private psychiatric practice within a psychiatric hospital. And that, you know, I went from that job learning a little bit about mental health, learning a little bit about how this worked. And then I progressed up to this great position at the Rhode Island Council of Community Mental Health Organizations as a training director slash uh, community organizer for people living with severe and persistent mental illness. And you can't really do a job like that without being introduced to trauma. And so one of my jobs was to help plan trainings, many of which were on trauma, and hire and and put materials together for trauma experts 
um, and uh, strangely enough, we I, I was doing this work in Rhode Island, and in 2003, we had the station nightclub fire, and my boss at the time and I put together, along with a bunch of other people, a, a, a conference that supported traumatic grief, uh, trauma uh, for the survivors, and then also for the folks who'd be treating the survivors to make sure they were equipped to deal with the trauma. But for me, my job was to sit in the back of the room and make sure everything went smoothly, which meant I also got to sit and absorb ridiculous amounts of information about trauma. And oddly enough, never connected it to my own. <laughs> and so uh, things may have it, uh, you know, the jobs kept going further and ahead. And I, I happened to get into the field of uh, community mediation. Just as a volunteer, I, I was really interested in conflict resolution and peace work. And so I became a volunteer mediator. And that led me to becoming the associate director at a local community mediation center where it turned out my job was to go into schools and start setting up peer mediation programs and working with teachers. And in all honesty, I, I hated listening to adults talk to children. It was demeaning. It was dehumanizing. It, it, the, the adult privilege that got thrown at children as if adults are better than children, it, it just made me nauseous. And so I went to a particular principal and I said, can I just give your staff some communication training and conflict training? So, and my secret hope was let's get them talking to kids better and less, you know, really just like less violently. And she agreed. And so I did a couple of workshops and they went really, really well. And so the next thing you know, the staff at that school kept asking me to come back the assistant principal of the school left and went to a different school. And the first thing she did was call me and be like, come to my school. And I'd be like, okay. And so then it was just game on, you know, how do I bring all this work into the field? And part of this work was that I was asked to be on a juvenile justice, restorative justice advisory board as a victim advocate. As you know, it's, as a person who'd survived two violent crimes, they wanted somebody who could bring a victim's voice to the work. And as part of it, I was given a three-day training in victim offender mediation through VOMA, the Victim Offender Mediation Association. A, barb a woman named Barbara Nimmer was my first restorative justice trainer. And I, I was just like, I, I, I want to do this. <laughs> like, I want to sit down with the people who, who harmed me. And, you know, while that wasn't possible, it, it still put me on a path. And then there was all that trauma stuff in my background. And at some point in time doing the work around restorative justice, I was at a restorative justice conference and I sat in on a, a, a workshop on trauma and children. And it, it, it totally blew my mind because it's all the stuff I learned from my previous work suddenly colliding with the present work I was doing. And I was like, oh my God, why, why did I not connect this? And then, then there's the ACEs study. Like I, I learned about ACEs and then I learned my own score. And I was like, oh shit, <laughs> like, oh crap, here we go. This is not a good thing. And, and it started to wake up and say, you know, not, not only am I a person that wants to support people in schools to treat kids better, but apparently I have, 
more firsthand knowledge of trauma than I thought that I did. And so I do have two violent crimes that were both uh, anti-gay bias crimes, uh, both of which almost took my life. Um, and it really gives you a perspective on, on the world <laughs> to, to almost lose your life twice. And now it's just the work. And I, in 2015, my position was being cut due to funding problems. And I'd been running two, uh, both an adult and a uh, juvenile uh, mediation program within the New Haven courts and uh, loving what I was doing. And then the funding was cut. Uh, we had a new governor. He cut all the programs. They were gone. My job was gone. And so when I went to leave the position, the schools that I was working with said, well, can't we just pay you? And I was like, oh, I guess that could be my new career. And, and now here we are, you know, seven years later and, uh, and a book later, and I'm, I'm blown away by my own progress and, and where I am. I'm loving it. <laughs> Beyond that, I love it. Yeah. And, and, I definitely, you know, listening to you, there were a couple of times where I was just like, yes, this is, this is it right here. Especially when you said that you were in the space listening to um, presentations on trauma and in conferences. And then at first you didn't connect it to your own, your own life and your own childhood trauma. And I think that that's something that occurs commonly. It's, it, it occurs a lot with people who are working in, in the field, any, any people focused field that they don't always, you know, connect to that their own um, trauma, especially in childhood, is really a driver for them to enjoy the work that they're doing, um, you know, so for um, to make that connection in the work, have that aha moment is I'm sure uh, kind of a peak like, oh, yes, this is, you know, purpose, this is, um, you know, my healing, my, my attempt, my unconscious attempt to heal myself. Um, and so that, that really, that really touched me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of people that are doing this work is that whether it's conscious or unconscious. And I think for me, it was a little unconscious that it was about healing and it was about, um, it, you know, I, I, I funny enough said this on another podcast and didn't think twice about what I'd said until really realized what I said later. But my, my quote in that, you know, with ATN, with uh, Julie Beam was this idea that I think I was, I think this work is about me creating a space in schools where a kid like me would have been okay. Because we don't have that yet. Like, there's no way I would have survived school even today. Um, because there was just too much going on in my little world and no refuge from it. Like if I went to school, I'm in a Catholic school where gay people are condemned, where I'm getting bullied relentlessly for being a little effeminate and a little small, which, you know, I know y'all can't see me right now, but I'm like five foot four. I'm like, I'm not a big guy. And so it's easy to tease and beat up on the little guy. I was two grades behind all the other kids because my birthday's in November. And then I'd been held back a year in second grade. And so by the time I was in second grade, I was two years older than every kid around me. And I don't think anybody pays attention to how impactful that is for a child. Like in seventh grade, I got my sister's copy of Catcher in the Rye, which is to date, 
I love that book. I love J.D. Salinger. And my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. Blessinger, took the book away from me and said, this is not appropriate for you. And, I, and now that I'm 50-some years old, I'm like, that was totally appropriate for me. Because if I'd been with my age group, I would have been reading that book. And by the way, all my friends were reading that book. I was just in a class that was behind. And so those little, little tiny happenings, you know, I, I, like little digs at my age, little digs at like how mature I was or wasn't, none of that mattered because you're just put into an age group. But then I go home and that's not a safe place either. And, you know, I, I have, you know, a mom who, who had untreated mental illness and who, and who was also very seriously abused. So it's that cycle of trauma. And so the cycle of trauma continued and, and it just didn't have a stop. And I, I truly believe that traumatic childhoods will produce traumatic adulthoods. And that was true for me, at least through my 20s. And then I hit 30 years old. And I got to my second gay bashing and that's where the world started to get better and get, and just start to clean up. And, and honestly, I think the thing that saved me was, you know, the, the inner, the, the factor where they say it, it really just takes one person to come into your life and show you your self-worth and to start having you believe differently about yourself. And for me, that was meeting my husband and, and, and here's this guy that's like, no, you're awesome. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yes, you are. And that, that's the kind of love I think it takes to, to start making people heal. And now, I've, I've, you know, it's 22 years later, as of last month, we've been together 22 years. And um, that all came because he was the guy that took me to the hospital. <laughs> and then, you know, when I left the hospital, they said, well, you can't go home by yourself. You have a head injury. I had a broken collarbone. I was not in great shape. And they said, look, you can go home, but not by yourself. And I'm like, I, I, I'm here by myself. And they're like, no, no, that guy that brought you here is out in the waiting room. And I'm like, really? <laughs> and so I go out in the waiting room and there he is. And he took me to his place and propped me up on his couch with all these pillows because, you know, sleeping with a broken collarbone is just literally impossible. <laughs> and the pain is ridiculous. And uh, just made me as comfortable as I could be. And then 22 years later, you know, home is still wherever he is and so uh you know as i'm now in my in a, in a new townhouse like home's here because he's here and and i think it, it shows you the power of just one relationship it shows you the power of love and you know that idea i think bruce perry said this that you know we get hurt in the context of relationship and we heal in the context of relationship and i think that's been a really important factor for me Oh, you, you said something that it just resonated with me and it, it took me back to some of the conversations we've had previously, primarily the one with Melissa Merritt, um, who is the uh, director of uh, Permanent Child Abuse Americas. When we, in that episode, we talked about the culture of child abuse in our country. And we don't mean those, um, we just mean a general idea that children need to be seen and not heard. And, and that happens uh, in homes, it happens in communities, it happens in organizations, it, it happens rampantly. And when I heard you say that about at school and at home, that hit me because as a kid, I remember that feeling of not having a voice. 
I remember the feeling of not being able to say how I felt um, in every aspect of, of my life, whether it was school, home, and I was raised in an evangelical home in church, so or whether it was at church. We weren't allowed to talk about how we felt, right? And so I hear that, and I think about how many kids, right, not just kids, but thinking about in the context of LBGTQ children across this country who not only don't have a voice, but they're not even allowed to be who they are as humans. You know, talk a bit about that and how you navigated that, because um, it's just something I think about all the time. When I had kids at school, even my own child, I think about it. What am I doing to honor him as a human, as a kid? as a human and before a kid, but how am I honoring him? What are your thoughts around that? Well, well, so one, the culture of child abuse, man, I can't, that just that statement resonates with me. And, um, uh, I'll give a plug for one of my favorite books. Like, and it's, it's surprising. Cause you think like my book to go to about like child abuse and the culture of child abuse would be like the boy who was raised as a dog. But that, I think those are the extreme cases where, you know, one of, and it's funny because it's sitting right here, so I'm going to give it a plug. And this is one of my favorite books on child abuse, Stacy Patton. It's not even about little white kids like me, but it is about little white kids like me. Stacy Patton's argument in this book, which just resonates with me in so many ways, and, and I've tried to reach out with her. She's never answered my emails, but, but I still like love her work. But her premise is that, you know, white European people raised children so brutally that they just lack empathy. They lack the skills to be able to connect with others. And when I read that, I was like, damn, that's me. Like, I've gone to a whole bunch of anti-racism workshops, and the entire time I was there, I couldn't breathe because all they were talking about were things that happened to me, both as a child who was abused, but also as a child who grew up gay and not wanted. And so the more they talked about discrimination and and being ostracized, I was just going to go right back to my own stuff. And I couldn't hear anything they were saying, which was all stuff as a white guy, I need to know, and I can't hear. And, and that was so frustrating because here I am trying to be a better person and be a better, be a better white person. But at the same time, I can't hear this message because I'm so triggered. And, and, and so this book has resonated me with so much, but it points out, like go into YouTube and you see some parent who got put on YouTube for like basically slapping their child in public. And the comment section will be like, yeah, that kid deserved it. Like it's nauseating what we think is okay as discipline for children. And, and unfortunately that's not, you know, a, a black kid thing or a white kid thing. That's American culture and Western culture thrives on punishing children. Um, I forget the, the which chapter it was in the book, Colorizing Restorative Justice, where they talked about that the, the line in the book said, you know, America runs on punishment just as much as it runs on Duncan. And I don't think people, and I wish people, this is what the core of my work is. I want people to understand how damaging punishment is, not just physical punishment, any kind of punishment. Punishment is, punishment and peace cannot coexist as long as there's somebody out there trying to make somebody else pay for past perceived wrongdoings and perceived is a really important word because one person's wrongdoing is somebody else's heroic action like we literally are setting up the circumstances where 
We raise children who lack empathy, which is Stacey Patton's argument. We we raise children that are so much struggling with their own internal nervous system that they don't have a lot of time to help other people. Hmm. And so you end up pushing that that hyper-individualism, that whole grit, pull up your bootstraps, you'll be fine thing. And, and, and instead of having people who value the interconnection of all of us, we end up with children who can't function. Now add the LGBT part of it on there. LGBT, it's, it's better today. Trust me, it's better today, but yet it's not. And, and in, in so many ways, yes, we can get married. We can get some protections. But the threat of that being taken away from us at any second You know, we all thought abortion was like a done deal. It's not. My my marriage could be wiped off the planet tomorrow. Um, But look at the messaging that that consistently says to children. What what if you're a 10-year-old kid looking at these laws in Florida that, like, don't even say gay? Like, well, what if you're a little 8-year-old, 10-year-old kid that has two dads? What am I supposed to not talk about my dads? What, you know, what... What if you're that 10-year-old kid and you're gay and they're like, oh, they're not allowed to say what I am. And I also think we paint such a negative picture of gay people that gay youth growing up look at them and say, well, that's not me. Like when I was growing up, I would hear all these messaging about gay people and they were like flamboyant and they could dance and decorate and love Broadway and None of that was me. I was an Ozzy Osbourne fan all the way. (laughs) My favorite band was Marillion. I listened to Genesis and Yes. I hated Broadway. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I must not be gay because I don't fit into that little box that they're telling me on TV that's supposed to be me. And then, you know, that slowly started to change as I got older and, and, and went out into the world. But the message is gay people are horrible. And by the way, you're probably one of them. So literally the messaging to gay youth, you're horrible. You're a bad person. People should be afraid of you. And, you know, it, it, I, I can't, you know, imagine growing up. So you go to school, you're bullied and, and tortured. You go home, you get beaten or, or, or emotionally told how, you know, selfish and useless you are. And then you you know, go out into the world and it clearly tells you how unwanted you are being who you are. And so by the time you get into your 20s, you're like, can I have a gin and tonic on ice and extra lime? <laughs> because you, you have to cope through this world that clearly is telling you you're not welcome here. And by the way, it, keep everything you are a secret. Mm, yeah. Except, I'm sorry, I'm a little too effeminate to keep it a secret. <laughs> I, I could butch it up all I can. And um, I'm sorry, that didn't seem to help. Because the gay bashers found me, no matter how butched up I thought I got, the gay bashers found me anyway. And so I think it paints for us how dangerous the world can be. Yeah, I think so much of this conversation, even when you talked about um, Dr. Patton, because she also talks to childism, which is really what we're talking about here, this kind of um, inability to treat children with dignity and respect. And, And you were talking about that at the beginning, about how that kind of got you into the work was witnessing children in school settings being talked to in a very aggressive way by adults. And uh, it is extremely pervasive. Um, Childism is really an issue that is at the root of of this problem. 
And then when we add in all the other ways that we label and ostracize people based on um, different things, gender, sexuality, race, then this is really what creates this culture of, of, of child abuse because children, you know, they begin their identity um, journey at about three years old. And so if they're receiving messages that connect with their identity that is negative um, from our society as a whole, then they're going to internalize those messages um, and then and act accordingly. And, and it will take a long time for them to be able to get out of that unless they have, like you said, at least one person that is there to say um, that you matter, you're loved, you know, this unconditional love. So love is not based on performance or based on how you um, present to the world or your skin color or your gender or actual sex that is always based on um, kind of your humanity. And that's kind of our, our beginning point. And as long as we are engaging with each other in a way that doesn't allow for that authentic um, development of children, um, then we're creating a culture of child abuse and we are engaging in childism. Um, and there's a long history in America of childism where, you know, that youth are worthless, that they're a burden, that, um, or yeah. on the other end, adults heap their hopes and dreams on children um, and, and uh, project onto children what they would like to have had in their lives or what they didn't accomplish and want their children to accomplish. And, um, and it is really pervasive in America. And so I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Dr. Patton because she does talk about childism. Um, and it also helps us to really think through, you know, why do we not treat children with respect and, and, and let them have their dignity? Um, right. So, yeah, it's very interesting that this is a, an American phenomenon. Um, and, and we're going to have to, you know, take a break and talk more about that as we get into the second half. And we definitely want to talk about you know, your healing journey as well. So we want to talk a little bit more about that. And I know that you have some projects coming up. So we definitely want to leave space for that as well. And this first half has been great. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. We are back continuing our conversation with advocate and author Joe Brumer. And we were in the first half really talking through his journey as it pertains to his work in restorative practices. And, um, and we kind of got into a discussion about childism and how um, we have in this, in this um, country and historically um, through issues like homophobia and um, racism and issues of how we treat people dealing with poverty and so many things, we have a culture of child abuse and um Joe Brimmer was really sharing his childhood. And I wanted to kind of talk about your your healing process. Like, what did that really look like? Uh, and share with the audience um, that journey. Yeah. I, I mean, I made, you know, I'm, I'm sitting, not, not that I'm secretive about my age. I'm 52 years old. And, you know, back in my early 20s, I, I started, like, trying to heal except I didn't, it was more an act of desperation. It's like, I, I have to get through this anxiety and panic attack and, and craziness that came with the PTSD of my first gay bashing. I mean, my first gay bashing was pretty bad. I was beaten pretty, pretty seriously and, and literally thrown in a river <laughs> and left for dead. And so healing from that was like hard. And, and, it, and it landed me, interestingly enough, it landed me in the sanctuary unit at Northwestern Hospital just months after Sandra Bloom had first opened it. And so for those who don't know who Sandra Bloom is, she is the one that coined the phrase, what happened to you versus what's wrong with you. Um, and of course, I didn't even make that connection until like literally a couple months ago. I was like, wait a minute, she just opened that. And I, so I was like there in the first couple months. And so I spent 30 days there, which was incredibly positive. Like, I think, I think everyone who's gone through some tough stuff should do some inpatient work because it was just really helpful. And it put me on a better path, but not enough. And then, you know, in early 2000, I did some, I I did some attempts at going to therapy and and trying to keep the panic attacks and the nightmares at, at bay. 
and 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 I managed to keep it up until the pandemic. And then the pandemic came, and a couple of like things happened to me that would literally tr- trigger my nervous system off, and it was getting harder and harder and harder to to come back from being triggered, and so you know, the path continued. I was like, all right, I have to, I have to address this. Like I've gone really, really far. You know, my career is doing well. My relationships are doing well. I can't lose what I have. And so I I went back and looked for more therapy and started to really do the work, really read the books, really start to dive into therapy, uh, started becoming a Bruce Perry junkie (laughs) and, and really reading about, Stephen Porges and, and polyvagal theory and trying to like do the psychoeducation work to understand my own healing. But a really interesting thing happened is I, I just wasn't taking care of myself either. And so I had, I had two, you know, five foot four, I was over 200 pounds. I couldn't even run up a flight of steps without getting out of breath. Um, and I, I also was doing really great work. Like I, I was getting into school districts and things were happening. I had partnered up with, you know, our now secretary of education, Miguel Cardona, who taught me amazing things about how to work in schools. Like I owe a lot to him for teaching me. Um, but then I also went, went, you know, and started going back into therapy and start really trying to heal. That started with getting healthy. And so the, one of the very first things I did, which I know is a super privileged thing to be able to do is I went to, I was going to the gym all the time and trying to lose weight and, and realizing it, it just wasn't happening. I, wasn't, I was never going to push myself enough, probably because I didn't believe in myself enough to do that. And so I, I happened to notice in the gym that they had the personal training section in the center where all these people pushing sleds and doing all this really hardcore work. And I'm like, I really don't even think I could do that stuff without having a heart attack. And it's probably what I should be doing. And so one day I just walked in and I was like, sign me up. I didn't ask how much it cost. I didn't care. I just was like, I have to do this. And it has to be for me. And I didn't even tell my husband at the time because I was afraid I can't have anyone talk me out of this. I can't. I just have to do this. And so I did it. And within the first couple months, I, I lost, you know, 60 pounds. I, you know, I, I felt amazing. I felt better about myself. But then I started concentrating on sleep. And so I really started cherishing sleep and, and taking care of my getting eight hours of actually good sleep. And, and then that mattered. And then, of course, you can't lose weight and get healthy if you're still munching down ice cream and, and, and some of the other nonsense that I was, like, engaging in, which is just lovely stuff to numb what trauma feels like um, and you know between alcohol which is delicious and full of calories and sugar and ice cream is delicious and full of calories and sugar and, and so I, I needed to start doing things that would take care of me and my husband had been developing this wellness idea about um, these three pillars of wellness and they made sense to me sleep movement and it doesn't mean exercise just movement you got to get out walking just move and so I started following it, sleep, movement, nutrition, and, and started looking at nutrition, not just the, as the food I put in my body, but the media, the music, like I started realizing what am I putting in my system? And I just tried to start making better 
better ideas. And I'd love to say they were choices, but they weren't. They were just desperation. Like, I need to feel better. And it worked. I, I really think, you know, and I, I hear this from Bruce Perry. It's like 45 minutes of therapy is nice, but that's not how people heal. People heal with these brief interactions. And so like a couple of really kind words from my personal trainer were like what I needed to hear. A couple of really kind words from uh, people around me saying, God, Joe, you've been looking really you know, good and you seem to be calmer. I started, I started realizing that the exercise, the food, it wasn't just making me look better or feel healthier. My nervous system was calming down. So you go back to Bruce Perry, regulate, relate, reason. I, I was letting myself stay regulated so that I could be more relational and, and mindful with my conversations and my boundaries. I could think a little clearer when I made my boundaries, which I have to admit as a child abuse survivor, I was terrible at that stuff. And those three pillars are what I think started driving healing. And, and now I, I, you know, and then I, I, I stepped into the realm of EMDR and I did a couple months at EMDR, which was just amazing. You don't even realize EMDR is helping you until it's not the things that it makes you start doing. It's the things you don't do, like get dysregulated. It's stupid stuff. Like a lot of my triggers were stupid things. Like my phone wouldn't connect to my car and I, I would be like ready to smash the dashboard. And, and it'd be like, why am I so upset about something so stupid? And, and I would recognize that my reactions were so over the top to little things. And so the EMDR started pulling that back. I wasn't getting upset about the car anymore. I wasn't getting upset about my GPS not working. I wasn't upset that like my printer didn't print or some weird thing like that. Or even people would say things to me that were totally not cool. And I would be able to handle it. And it just, I was like, oh, this, I don't know what's happening, but I'm, I am all for it. And so I, I really do think that there, I think therapy for trauma survivors in the last 20 years has grown to just such amazing levels. Like when I was in my 20s and hospitalized, they basically told me I'd be on medicine forever. I'm not. Um, they told me that I would have to be in therapy basically forever. I mean, they basically, the outlook of what had happened to me didn't look all that good. Um, now, now that outlook's much different. We have things like biofeedback, neurofeedback. Uh, we have things like EMDR, somatic therapies, e even the use of psychedelics to help people um, heal their, their memory. Like we have choices for people who have PTSD and more importantly, we have people like Pete Walker and um, Bessel van der Kolk pushing still for a diagnosis of complex PTSD, which while not still an official diagnosis needs to be because this isn't what child abuse survivors have isn't just basic PTSD. It is, it is much more involved. And then add to that, that beyond all of that, there is a, a historical trauma that gay people pass to each other. Like the second you come out and meet a bunch of other gay people, they tell you everything you need to watch for. They tell you how to walk down the street and be careful. They tell you where to go and where not to go. Like, but they're also programming you with the trauma 
that continues through the stories, the messages. They tell you what films you should watch, you know, who you should read. Like, and suddenly you're now being exposed to, to everything. In between that, my healing also had to be like coming to terms with my sexuality, coming to terms with, even though I've been in this really healthy relationship for 20 years, like I still have discomforts about being a gay man and that, that are hard to shake. Uh, and we don't even talk about the historical trauma of HIV. And, and it, you know, you don't even have to be HIV positive to have been traumatized by HIV and AIDS. If you grew up in that late 80s, early 90s, where the height of the epidemic came about before AZT, AIDS was a death sentence. And so the terror that young gay men were facing was real. You know, people traded in their life insurance policies. People gave their belongings away. And then all of a sudden, one day, the doctor hands them AZT and says, oh, you're going to live. They now have to rebuild their whole life. And, and, and I don't even see that. It, it, that rarely gets acknowledged when people talk about trauma. It really, I, I think the experiences of gay men really don't get acknowledged. Uh, e even as far as, you know, look at the Holocaust. You know, the Allied forces came and freed everyone from the concentration camps but one group, gay men. Because under German law, homosexuality was still illegal. And so everyone was freed and sent home, except the gay people were sent to other prisons. Their torture wasn't over. And I, that's not, we, we don't even talk about this stuff. It's all like, oh, well, it's the gay people. Yeah, well, <laughs> we should be talking about this stuff. We should be talking about pride should be about healing those things. And now pride's about, oh, you're gay? We'll give you a discount on a new roof. Ooh, oh, that doesn't goodness. seem to be how we started this. I'm pretty sure some black drag queens with some bricks started this, not corporate America, which yeah. I'm happy that's happening. And at the same time, I really think it takes away from what it means. I think that's a conversation worth having. I mean, I'm, first, I'm, I definitely understand what you're saying. I, I, I do a um, historical trauma uh, presentation that I've been doing since 2000. 11 now it's been a long time uh and um one of the oh, a couple of the slides are really outlining you know groups and um i've added lgbtq plus and i've added um pandemics uh to an ep in in and um and so first it made me think i've always i always talk about the hiv aids um, epidemic in in my discussions when I have you know the full time to do so uh, and um, there is a very clear pushback around including um, these things in this presentation it comes up every time um, one of the reasons why I added it is because I did a presentation ugh, probably three or four years back and um, and it was a group it was a workforce. But it, you know, that just so happened to have, you know, several people in the community in that presentation. And they, they said that you need to add this to it. And then a couple of years ago, um, you were in an audience in a presentation that I gave with ATN and brought it up. And it just so happened that it was an old slide that didn't have it on there. So I had to go in and say, yes, this is 
this group should be here is really my oversight. Um, but it is a very clear indication of like, even within oppressed groups, people will push back and say, no, you shouldn't include this group. And I think it's very oh, interesting. The chat. Because, yeah. the chat was insane. Yeah. When, I, when I went into the chat and said, nice slide, why aren't gay people on it? Yeah. Literally for the next 15 minutes that I was attacked, but I'm a child abuse and bullying survivor. It took me months to get over that. Those, yeah, and- those remarks. Like I literally, cause it just like dug into me like, oh, I should have shut my mouth. Why did I say anything? Oh, and no. then you were the one that sent me a note and made my anxiety go away. Yeah, I was like, so, no, that's my bad. I'm still grateful. I didn't include it this time, but yeah, I it really was just an oversight using an old slide, and and I was like, no, 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 like let me make sure I reach out and make this make this uh, better. But it is an issue, and I think it it is about this historical trauma because it 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 is pervasive in our society. The root of it is religion, um, organized religion, uh, and how even, you know, like I said, people who are uh, a part of groups that have been long oppressed will be sure to say, well, no, I I don't um, want to be included with this group, or I I think we shouldn't include this in the discussion. And it is a historical trauma. And um, beyond that, you know, when we talk about historical trauma of, um, because I include pandemics and epidemics in, in, um, um, in, in that training as well. And um, people don't want to talk about HIV AIDS. And um, even though in that presentation, I talked about it within the context of the African-American community, um, there is still this pushback and they only want to hear about it when I'm talking about it within the context of, you know, an increased risk for black women. Um, but we do have a historical um, context here that we need to reckon with that prevents groups from being able to engage in healing because of bias um, yeah. and a bias that is not even, um, I mean, even if we um, tie it to religion, which is there is this a weak, it's a weak tie to religion, to be honest. Um, what we're really saying is, you know, not everybody practices the same religion. So it, it's very clearly an issue that people of intersectionality, that people don't want to acknowledge um, the pain, historical trauma of the community, even as they experience oppression themselves, which I think is morbidly interesting. I, I'm, I'm very interested in how even oppressed communities can say they want to distance themselves from, from these discussions. Um, and also to bring up another thing is we think about trauma in a different way, historical trauma, and but then also the collective trauma. And so when you said that you felt um, a setback in your healing during COVID, you know, that that collective trauma of COVID really exasperated uh, already existing issues around mental health, even those that you, you know, individuals thought they had already already overcome, like addiction or, um, you know, it really points to how this issue of trauma is very complex and it's historical and it's collective and um, that you have to acknowledge it in all the different ways that it manifests, be it the HIV AIDS epidemic or how we um, go through a process of um, in, uh, acculturating a person into a, a group. So, you know, that process, you know, when as someone comes out 
And then people in that community say, well, this is how you have to act, or this is how you protect yourself, that there, that's a double edge, that there is that passing along of that trauma. And it does actually have some protective, you know, and adaptive um, factors, but it is a double edge. So I, I definitely think yeah. it's a very nuanced conversation. And it's funny how even knowing everything you just said, we, and knowing what the ACEs study taught us about the impacts of childhood trauma on, you know, health and well-being outcomes for adults, why is trauma not considered a pandemic? <laughs> why are not government resources being poured into this as we have climate change, you know, having, we have children whose entire town burned down. We, we have, you know, children literally being traumatized, going to school, practicing for a school shooting that didn't even happen. And then there's the school shootings that are happening. And even kids who are not in those schools are affected by that because it's making them scared to go to school. Trauma is a pandemic. I, I don't know why people don't want to nail it as one, but it, yes, I, I just, I, I, I wish we would pour the same resources into trauma that we have poured into other pandemics because it, it, it really runs most of the social problems that we have today can be tied back to trauma. It's like the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. And maybe it's because it's too painful because the chances are if there are 10 of us in a room, nine of us have experienced trauma. And then there's that one guy going, I don't get it. <laughs> and, and the rest of us going, sit down, let me tell you. And, and, it, this, this is the pandemic. This is the pandemic I wish people were talking about. Because then the craziest thing is just like every other pandemic, you can wear a mask. You could do something. You could prevent trauma by making sure every policy that we write has considered how will it impact young mothers how will it impact children? But as a country, we don't have paternal leave. We barely have maternal leave. We, we have no prioritization for health, uh, for the health and well-being of children. We won't even, we would much protect our guns and our children. We don't have childcare available for everyone. We, we don't prioritize children. And therefore we have an epidemic or pandemic of trauma. And I don't know, until we wake up to that, it, it, it's hard to be hopeful. I, I mean, I'm glad that there's hope. There's hope in our conversation right now. The fact that we are out here talking about trauma and trying to get people aware is, is a start. That's hope. The fact that we have Secretary Cardona, who's really, really pushing for trauma-informed schools and, and restorative justice in schools and equity in schools, these are hopeful things. They really are. I, I just need to see more. Well, and I... I... I, I will I will be openly and open and honest that the last school shooting, not that the others haven't impacted me, but it was the first that I had been out of a school. I hadn't been I've been in school for 15 years and um, I came to the realization that this there's this conversation that keeps coming up as, you know, there's nothing we can do or what can we do? And, and I've started saying to myself, there's nothing right now culturally we're willing to do. It's right. not that there isn't anything we can't do. It's just for some reason right now, we're not willing to do it. And I think that goes 
historically, when change hasn't occurred, when we knew it should, it was because at the time, it, it was, people weren't willing to do it. And I do think there is hope. Um, I do think that we will get to a point where all of these things that we're talking about, because you have to think, the ACEs study was done in the mid '90s. Didn't even really make it out in in even a public air in a public uh, way until early 2000s, mid 2000s for a lot of people. This is new research, right? It's not, but it is. So as this research continues to go, it is my hope that we can continue to come back to say, okay, we know we got it wrong. Now let's do it better. We know we got it wrong. Say, let's now do it better. There's always going to be those, the, the people who don't want to do it differently or better. Um, unfortunately, it's most of the time those that it's working for. Um, and so there is a, a disruption that is happening and it's been happening for a long time. I've heard Ingrid say it's better now than it's ever been, but that doesn't mean it's good. And I think we have to continue to see that for the sake of ourselves, our kids, their kids, and generations to come that, Joe, you are making the world better. Ingrid, you are making the world better. I hope every day I'm making the world better in a place that we are trying to invoke this change and to see that we are creating a better world, not the best, um, but that there is hope at the end. And that's what I keep resonating towards is it's not that there's nothing we can do. It's, it's right now for some reason in some spaces, there's just not a willingness to do it. And I hope that one day that will change. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matthew. I want to give some space for Joe to talk about an upcoming project before we head up. Yeah, I have, I have a couple upcoming projects. The one, my, my sister, Chris and I are, are writing a book mm -hmm. uh, that sort of details not only the things we've been through, which are, pretty crazy and horrific but but also just we want people to be aware that 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 trauma is healable like you you can come back um, i'm also writing a, a second book with mark thorsborn out of australia um, our first book was called building a trauma-informed restorative school our second one is going to be becoming a trauma-informed restorative educator we want to focus on the self-regulation work that has yeah. to happen and the co-regulation work that has to happen with kids and so we're writing that book um, I'm also going to be the, the closing keynote at the uh, Eastern Mennonite University's Restorative Justice and Education Conference. And so if there's still a chance to register for that conference if you want to hear that speech. Yeah. I don't know what it'll be about because I haven't written it, but <laughs> it's going to be awesome, whatever it is. Make sure and to so, check out Joe and happy Pride, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, happy Pride. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.